Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this audio edition of Christian Ethics in the Wild. It is Monday evening, about 9.40, and uh, just got home from my monthly book club that I have. I've been meeting with the same, well, not the same group of guys, but with a few uh, similar folks for the last uh, few years, not actually gotten the book read. The book in question this time was by Patrick Lee Fermor, a book called A Time of Gifts. So Fermor himself was just kind of one of these time out of uh, time out of joint kind of individuals. He lived kind of a larger in life existence, knew multiple languages, uh, parachuted onto the Isle of Crete at one juncture and helped lead a rebellion against uh the Nazis there, I mean, just kind of like a real, just a kind of a, a gentleman's Indiana Jones of kind of sorts. Um, I did not finish reading the book and it was the first time in probably a couple of years that I've not finished reading the book, not because of anything about the book. It's just been that kind of month. So, um, but in the process of discussing the book, the concept, like one of the things about the book that lends itself to um, perpetual rereading and to perpetual appreciation is the way in which it describes a world which is largely lost to us. So this book, A Time of Gifts, takes place, um, was written kind of like three decades after the actual events took place. In Chronicles, um, the young Patrick Lee Farmer, as he is um, undertaking kind of a, a European travelogue, he travels through England and then through Germany and through the Rhineland and through the Netherlands and ultimately is headed toward Turkey. I didn't make it that far in the book. Um, but as he's going, he just really, you know, he is conversant in art. He's conversant in the classics. He's able to quote Homer in the Greek. He uh, makes a joke with somebody uh, about the Indian in Latin. I mean, it's just kind of like it. It is written in a. It is written to describe a world that just doesn't really exist anymore, except not in, except in very um, erudite pockets that uh, myself living in Abilene, West, yeah, Abilene, Texas, just can't conceive of. This is not a world that I belong to, have ever belonged to, or frankly ever aspire to belong to. So, but it is a beautiful world. I mean, it's a world in which, um, which the young, at least of a particular class, grow up and are conversant in art history and classic literature and uh, classic languages and philosophy and um, they're conversant in things that it took me going through graduate education to grow to appreciate and or encounter for the first time and this would have been just kind of par for the course for them in primary school or in or at the university and so it just really depicts this lovely I don't know if lovely is quite the right world. It depicts a world in which there is a kind of philosophical and aesthetic kind of perfection, which 
just commends itself because it's beautiful, right? Who wouldn't want to um, live in a world where traveling down the Rhine River and being taken in by as a you know as a traveler by hospitable hosts who just want to put you up for the night? Who wouldn't want to live in that world, right? That sounds like a pretty good thing. Who wouldn't want to live in a world in which people are conversant in art and philosophy and literature and um, and all the rest? That sounds really good to me. As someone who majored in English literature and who has read a good bit of philosophy and spends a good bit of time with uh, texts that are no less than a thousand years old, like a lot of that sounds really good to me. So it got me thinking about this question of perfection. And it made me think that there are, and so I want to spend this episode um, thinking about, like, what is it to be perfect? We're in a season of Lent, right? Um, those of you who celebrate Lent, which I hope you do. Um, and part of the impulse of Lent is a time of self-reflection and a time of taking stock of one's own life in light of the call that Christ has played, placed upon us to journey with him to the cross and into uh, into the resurrection of the dead. Um, so Lent lends itself to just a lot of introspection and a lot of consideration of the kind of lives that we're leading. It's a time of taking stock of whether or not I've been wasting my time with um, trying to keep up with various sorts of TV shows or have I been just, you know, dulling my senses with the kind of food? Of, have I been um, dulling my soul with the kind of things that I desire? Like it's a real, it's a real call toward, it's a real call toward perfection. It really, it really is. And so I thought, begin thinking about this as we're discussing firmer tonight. Um, the firmer is is offering a kind of it's a kind of perfected vision and not not as not in any sort of like uh, antagonistic sort of way. It's not trying to like argue you into this. It's just displaying it, right? Firmer isn't trying to show off when he's able to quote multiple um, multiple ancient poets or he's is conversant in uh, art history. He's not trying to show off. He's just kind of showing it for what it is. This is just kind of part of what he is. Um, and it is, so it is a kind of, it commends itself as a, as beautiful just by its very existence. But that kind of perfection, um, the, so these two kinds of, um, these two kinds of pursuits of perfection, the one embodied by Lent and the one embodied by the work of someone like a Patrick Lee Fermer, I think these represent like two very different kinds of perfection. One is a perfection of virtue. And one is the perfection, um, which I think is just kind of a, an, it's a, it's a historical accident. So to opine for a material culture beyond that, which is available to us, um, it can be aspirational. It can call us to consider in a kind of purgative sort of way those things which we don't really need and which we've justified and we probably could be doing without just as fine. Um, Lent is a great time for, for kind of considering all that. 
Um, but there's a lot of the kinds of things, of the kinds of perfections that firmware depicts, which while beautiful, are simply not those things which are available to us anymore. And um, so does it do us any good to opine for a world in which um, school children are taught Latin in a primary age? Well, maybe. Um, my concern is that it, it produces in us something that Bonhoeffer, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer diagnoses in the first chapter of Life Together, when he says that um, being ungrateful for what we have before us produces in us a kind of accusatory nature, that we have such an ideal um, in front of us as to what things should be like that it first makes us an accuser of those around us and then it makes us an accuser of god and it makes us and finally makes us an accuser of ourselves um that rather than seeing that which has been given to us as an opportunity like god's can persist an opportunity for for our provision and for goodness and for um for our sanctification we only see it as less than ideal or less than perfect as wonderful as firmer is this is what i worry about with these kinds of works is that they depict a world which is a no longer possible for any number of cultural reasons but also one which i think stands as a kind of um implicit accusate like we we read it and rather than accept it as this beautiful rendition of a world that once was but is no longer we we read it as a kind of accusation against the world in which we actually live rather than as an opportunity for gratitude for the world in which we actually do live so there are two culture and historical accidents like these things aren't going to repeat themselves they were great when they were and there's much to learn from what what these things were but there's i don't think that they are necessarily an invitation to be repeated but there's a different kind of a perfection which doesn't depend on historical accident, which but depends upon the gratuity of God to all times and all places, and that is the perfection of that is available in virtue. Now, when I say that, virtue never shows up, and the pursuit of virtue never shows up in a perfected form. Virtue whenever it is enacted, wherever it is enacted, always shows up in burdened and encumbered sorts of forms. There are always material limits that we have to deal with. There are limits of intellect. There are limits of um, culture. There are limits of time. There are limits of obligation. Um, I don't say that to be kind of... Uh, to be like accommodationist that, oh, it's fine. You can be a terrible person because that's just kind of the historical limits you're living in. Um, I just, I'm just saying that the way in which, like when we have aspirational versions of virtue, um, we forget that sometimes there's a lot of like historical accidents baked in that we just can't do anything about. But rather to, and, and we forget in that, that God, um, God gives to us what is needed for our, for our sanctification and for our growth into the love of God. God gives that at all times and at all places. Um, and not just in the 1930s England when uh, school children learned their Latin and Greek um, as a part of their regular routine.
So sometimes this pursuit of virtue can take um, can take teaching this course on intentional Christian communities, and there can be a lot of um, there can be a lot of like wistful thinking or stylization when it comes to the monastic life. But one of the things that I think I've appreciated about teaching this course is watching the way in which this impulse toward Christian community, it doesn't just take one form, but it slowly begins to accommodate itself to um, trying to make itself available and commendable to um, just normie Christians who want to uh, pursue a more virtuous existence but find themselves um, incapable for any number of reasons to do the thing which other monastics have done, which is to flee into the desert or to to go to the monasteries. Um, they want those kinds of goods. And so you begin to see over time, beginning with the Reformation forward, um, a whole lot of movements which are ordered toward um, not just the single, not just those who can... Um, devote themselves entirely in their lives to prayer and to to adoration in the life of the monastery but to married folks to families to um to ministers who will be living in cities so that the form of faithfulness which which begins in the pursuit of virtue which uh, the early monastics sought um through fleeing toward Christ and fleeing toward Christ in the form of uh, monastic life in the desert, that this is something that Christians later will continue to value and to pursue, but pursuing it in the historical um, valences that are available to them. That what is what we're after here, ultimately, um, during this time of Lent, is a kind of perfection of virtue that always and ever takes place under burdened circumstances. That there might be formal similarities of performance between the past and the present, but what is asked of us is to, um, to pursue with the purity of heart and with a wholehearted, um, wholeheartedness that to, uh, 